Welcome to the Relevant Truth Podcast. My name is Roger Mason. This podcast is dedicated to examining biblical truth. The Bible is overflowing with relevant truth useful in our everyday lives. Thus the title, Relevant Truth. The Bible was relevant to those that first heard it through the apostles and prophets. It is also timeless truth, which means it is relevant for us today in the 21st century. It is my hope that through this podcast, you will be both encouraged and challenged as we look at the Bible together. In today's podcast, we will be looking at Acts chapter 27, a description of Paul's journey to Rome as a prisoner of the Roman government. From this portion of scripture, we gain some fascinating insight into decision making. We make decisions every day of our lives. But how do we make those decisions? What guides us in our decision making? The big idea in today's podcast is avoiding dangerous decision making. So let's look at Acts chapter 27 verses 9 to 14 reading in the New King James Version. And now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this journey will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. If by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opened towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. Let's read Acts verse 27 verse 14, this last verse in the New Living Translation. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, a nor'easter, they called it, caught the ship and blew it out to sea. Paul was a prisoner on his way to Rome under Roman guard. They had sailed as far as the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea to a port called Fair Havens. That's verse 8. They had arrived there with great difficulty, and the voyage had already taken them a considerable amount of time. The adverse weather conditions made it impossible for them to leave the harbor at Fair Havens. That's verse 9. The Fairhaven Harbor was exposed to the northwest winds, not really an ideal place to spend the winter. By the early fall, the winter winds become fierce, and by mid-November, all sailing was impossible in the Mediterranean. In those ancient times, the ships were not large enough to withstand the winter storms. The dangerous season for sailing began in late September or early October. Luke makes note, sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. This fast that Luke refers to is the Day of Atonement, which fell at the end of September or early October. Paul advises against continuing the journey at this time of year. Verse 10. 
Paul was an experienced traveler who had been shipwrecked three times, according to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 25. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent the whole night and a day adrift at sea. Acts 27 verse 10. Sir, he said, I believe that there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, injuries, and danger to our lives. The first part of verse 10 in the New King James Version reads, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster. Paul speaks with certainty that disaster will occur if they continue. Paul is not just saying that there is a possibility of disaster, but he appears to be speaking prophetically. Paul seemed to have the sense from God that disaster would come upon them if they attempted to head out from fair havens. Paul's words were ignored and the voyage continued. The journey eventually ended up in shipwreck. Today we want to look at five factors that will contribute to dangerous decision making. First, failure to heed God's warning, verses 9 and 10. Let's read verses 9 and 10 in the New Living Translation. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for long voyages by then because it was so late in the fall and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. Sir, he said, I believe that there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, injuries, and danger to our lives. So Paul said, I believe that there is trouble ahead if we go on. In verse 10, I don't believe that Paul spoke out of fear or insecurity. He was concerned for the welfare of the passengers. Paul was speaking prophetically. He knew something was going to go wrong. Have you ever had that feeling that something bad was going to happen, but you didn't know why you felt that way? I've experienced this. I remember in 1990, I had arranged to take a team of 12 people to Haiti on a missions trip. We were flying from Toronto to Montreal, and then from Montreal, we were taking a direct flight from the airport there to Port-au-Prince in Haiti. And as we were being shuttled from Dorval to Maribel in Montreal, I remember having this sick feeling come over me. I began to feel like something was wrong. The weight of all the people that were under my care came on me and I began to pray. I said to the Lord, if there is some hidden danger, protect us from it. I remember I couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. And when we got to Maribel Airport, we learned that the flight had been canceled because of political unrest in the country. It was too dangerous for us to enter the country, and we were not able to leave the airport. It was a huge inconvenience because all the people with me had to rebook the flight later on, uh, about three weeks later. We had to reschedule everything, and it ended up that I took only seven of that 12 team members with me when we, when we booked the flight uh, three weeks later. Paul had no authority to stop this voyage. He was a prisoner. They resisted what Paul said. They resisted Paul's warnings. In reality, they were resisting the voice of God because I believe that Paul was speaking prophetically, that Paul was speaking with a knowledge that God had given him. Paul was not just expressing a personal opinion. He was sounding a warning that came from God. God was speaking to him. God often warns us of approaching danger. 
I've had this experience more than once. We can ignore these warnings, or we can choose to respond to God's warnings. There are many examples of these warnings that are given in Scripture. Here are a couple of examples. Jesus warns the unrepentant cities in Galilee of God's coming judgment. That's found in Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where he had done most of his miracles because they hadn't turned from their sins and turned to God. What horrors await you, Chorazin and Bethsaida? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have sat in deep repentance long ago, clothed in sackcloth and throwing ashes on their heads. I assure you, Tyre and Sidon would be better off on the judgment day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to the place of death. But if the miracles I did for you had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. I assure you, Sodom will be better off on the judgment day than you. So Jesus warns these three Galilean cities that God's judgment was coming because of their unrepentance. Noah preached to a generation and warned them for 120 years of God's judgment. That's found in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Joseph was warned in a dream to flee to Egypt in Matthew 2 and verse 13. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. And the angel said, Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to try to kill the child. So we have a number of examples of God's warnings to his people. Jonah was told to go warn Nineveh of God's judgment in Jonah 3, verses 3 to 6. Isaiah warned the city of Jerusalem of God's judgment in Isaiah chapter 29. Paul warned the church that false teachers would arise in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 6. And Paul warned the church that false doctrine would come in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 11. So there are many biblical examples of those who chose to ignore the warnings of God, as people did in Noah's generation. These stories of warning are placed in the Bible for our benefit. We need to pay attention to the warnings of God, because God does warn his people of danger. God warns us in order to keep us from danger. God warns us because he is looking out for us. Unfortunately, God's warnings are often ignored or missed. We don't pay attention to them. Life is too busy. There are too many distractions. We miss what God is trying to tell us. God doesn't always put up a neon sign to warn us. His warnings are often subtle. Only whispers, only a still small voice, but nonetheless they are warnings and we need to pay attention to them. It is important to pay attention to the warnings that God gives us, however they come. In the TV series called The Bible, 
There is a scene where the angels warn Lot and his family of the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels have to practically drag Lot and his family out of the city because they don't really want to leave. Lot's wife still looks back when she was warned not to, and then she turns into a pillar of salt. God will clearly warn us of danger, but he is not going to carry us away from danger, kicking and screaming against our will. We must decide if we are going to listen to God's warnings. Failure to heed God's warnings will always lead to danger and dangerous decision-making. So a second factor that contributes to dangerous decision-making is listening to advice that exclusively matches our desires. Verse 11, reading from the New Living Translation, Acts 27, verse 11. But the officer in charge of the prisoner listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. The decision ultimately rested with the centurion, or the officer, who was the highest official on the ship, and he followed the advice of the captain and the owner of the ship, according to verse 11. They decided to depart from fair havens. The motivation of the ship owner may have been to get his grain to a larger port so that he could sell it and make a profit. Furthermore, Julius, the centurion in charge, probably wanted a better port to spend the winter with his fellow soldiers and his prisoners. The decision to depart from Fairhaven may have been motivated by greed or by a desire for comfort. It is important that we look at the motivations behind our opinions and decisions. Why is it that people always quote others who agree with them? John Piper says, Mark Drisco says, James McDonald says, and we go around quoting these great spiritual authorities to support and to confirm our opinions. We listen to the advice that matches our desires and opinions. But do we listen to those who disagree with us? No, not really. Why? Because they have a different opinion than ours. We have fixed beliefs and opinions that we don't want anyone to challenge. Sometimes those people who disagree with us are more of a friend and a support to us than those that agree with us. Are we only open to people that agree with us? God will often offend us in order to get us to stop and think about the direction that we're going in. Jonah is a good example of this. God spoke to Jonah about preaching to Nineveh. That was the capital city of Israel's arch enemy, Assyria. What did Jonah do? He went in the opposite direction. God and Jonah really didn't agree, but Jonah eventually changed his mind. God can get very persuasive, especially in the stomach of a big fish. When I was a young pastor, I had a person who always maneuvered me into agreeing with them. They would quiz me about some subject, seeking to get me to agree with them. They would frame each question in such a way that I would have to agree with their opinion. I always felt uncomfortable about this line of questioning because I felt like I was being manipulated into agreeing with what they believed. I was being manipulated into giving them the answer that they wanted to hear from their pastor. 
I eventually learned to stop this kind of situation by asking some questions of my own. Listening to advice exclusive to our desires and opinions may lead to dangerous decision-making. Why? Because we are only looking for confirmation for the direction that we want to go in, or we are looking for confirmation for the opinions that we hold. We are not really open to anything that is contrary to what we think. A good Christian brother or sister is one who will challenge a friend if they think that they are wrong. It says in Proverbs 27 verse 6, Wounds from a friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. Constructive criticism or loving correction is the evidence of a true friend. A true friend who is willing to risk your goodwill in order to challenge you if they think you're wrong. Think of the risk that the prophet Nathan took in challenging King David with his sin in 2 Samuel 12. David was a powerful king, but Nathan, David's friend, still challenged him. A true friend will challenge us when we are wrong. Jesus is a true friend. Listening to advice which exclusively matches our desires is dangerous and leads to dangerous decision-making. A third factor that leads to dangerous decision-making is dissatisfaction with circumstances. Verse 12, And since Fairhaven was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter. Most of the crew wanted to go to Phoenix, further up the coast to Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. That's Acts 27, verse 12 in the New Living Translation. Contrary to Paul's advice, the majority decided it best to sail on to a more suitable harbor for the winter. Fairhaven was not a suitable harbor to winter since it was exposed to a northwest wind. The majority agreed to travel on to a better port. Possibly they could reach Phoenix, which lay further west, some 60 miles. Why do we believe that the majority is always right? We think if our opinion reflects that of the majority, that we are safe in what we are thinking. The Bible tells us the opposite. The majority is almost always wrong. The majority report of the 12 spies concerning Canaan was wrong. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. That's Numbers 13, verse 31. Joshua and Caleb, however, disagreed with the ten. They said, let us go at once and take the land. We are certainly able to conquer it. That's Numbers 13 and verse 30. They were the minority report. They were two against ten. They turned out to be right. The majority was wrong. Two were right and ten were wrong. We know the consequences of their disobedience. A whole generation died in the wilderness. The majority of Israel wanted a king to rule over them. They said in 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5, Give us a king like the other nations have. The majority was wrong again. Samuel was very upset with their request and went to the Lord for advice. Do as they say, the Lord replied, 
for it is me that they have rejected, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. That's 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 and 7. So in this story, the majority again was wrong. They wanted a king. Samuel resisted this, but the Lord told Samuel that they were not rejecting him, that they were rejecting God. The New Testament tells us that the majority is wrong, for it is the majority who travels the highway to hell and a few who find the gateway of life. Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 in the New Living Translation says this, You can enter the kingdom of God only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. Its gate is wide for the many who choose the easy way. But the gateway to life is small, and the road is narrow, and only a few ever find it. The majority is usually wrong. It appears that the direction that was taken here is because of dissatisfaction with circumstances. Dissatisfaction often guides many of our decisions. If we are unhappy with our circumstances, we are going to do something else because it will make us more comfortable and happy. People voted for Obama in the U.S. election because they were dissatisfied, unhappy, and angry with their circumstances. They wanted change. This is often the motivation for our vote. We're dissatisfied with what is going on, and so therefore we're voting for change. We are often guided by our dissatisfaction with circumstances, people, or things. Dissatisfaction is a poor guide. When a marriage, or a family, or a business, or a church is going through troubled times, people often decide to leave it because of those troubles. When trouble comes to a church, people are led to leave. When we are dissatisfied with a situation, we are often more inclined to leave it than to stay. Unfortunately, it is not always the Holy Spirit who leads the Christian. It is dissatisfaction. The one message that came to each of the seven churches in Revelation was to be an overcomer. Many of these churches were facing difficulties. And the single common message to each of these churches was that they were to be overcomers. To him who overcomes, he who overcomes. Again and again we read it in Revelation 2, 7, 2.11, 2.17, 2.26, 3.5, 3.12, and 3.21. In each one of these verses, we read the phrase, to him who overcomes, or he who overcomes. God's message was to each of these churches that they needed to become an overcomer. God calls us to be overcomers. God calls us to overcome the difficult circumstances that we face, not to escape them, but to overcome them. Dissatisfaction is a poor guide in decision-making. That's why Paul advised against it. For the Christian, God's will is the supreme court of appeal for all decisions. We need to seek God's will on all matters. Dissatisfaction with circumstances leads to dangerous decision-making. The fourth factor that contributes to dangerous decision-making is impatience. 
being in a hurry to move forward with our plans. Verse 12, And since Fairhaven was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go to Phoenix, further up the coast of Crete, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. That's Acts 27, verse 12 in the New Living Translation. It is clear that the crew of Paul's ship was in a hurry to get to Rome. Impatience combined with dissatisfaction is a deadly combination. The scriptures are full of exhortations to wait on the Lord. The scriptures say, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That's Psalm 27 and verse 14. The scriptures also say, But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 40 verse 31. The theme of waiting on the Lord is repeated throughout the Bible with warnings against hasty action. God often calls us to wait on the Lord instead of hasty, impatient action. We often hear the message, hurry, do it, don't think about it, don't wait, just do it. This message is from the devil. When we feel hurried, the necessity to act right away, pushed or urged to move forward immediately, to make our decision in haste without thought, This is from the devil. Hasty action in the Bible always results in wrong decision making. Let's look at some examples of this. Herod with John the Baptist. This is found in Mark 6 verses 14 to 29. Herodias, that's Herod's wife, hated John the Baptist because of the public rebuke of their unlawful marriage. This wicked woman vowed to take revenge on John the Baptist. Herod respected John as a holy man and thwarted her efforts to take revenge on him. Finally, her chance came at Herod's birthday party. Herodias arranged for her daughter to dance before Herod and his friends. This so pleased Herod that he promised to give anything up to half of his kingdom. Prompted by her mother, she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's Mark 6, verse 25. Herod was trapped by the scheme of an evil woman. Against his own desire and better judgment, he granted the request. The foolish promise and the hasty action led to a wrong decision. The head of John the Baptist. A second example, Joshua and the Gibeonites. Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites went to great length to make it look as though they had come from a far country and to deceive Israel. Israel was not allowed to make treaties with the people of the land. That's clear. It's found in Exodus 34 and verse 11 and 12 and Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 to 18. They could, however, make treaties with people who were not Canaanites. So the Israelite leader examined their bread, but they did not consult the Lord. That's Joshua 9 and verse 14. 
Then Joshua went ahead and signed a peace treaty with them, and the leaders of Israel ratified their agreement with a binding oath. That's Joshua 9 and verse 15. So Joshua and the leaders of Israel made a huge mistake because of a hasty treaty that they made with the Gibeonites, inhabitants of Canaan. A hasty decision led to a wrong decision. Another example with Jephthah. Jephthah's hasty vow in Judges 11 verses 29 to 33. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, If you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. That's Judges 11, verses 30 and 31. Then Jephthah returned home to Mizpah. His daughter, his only child, ran out to meet him, playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. That's Judges 11, verse 34. So Jephthah's hasty vow ended in tragedy. There is considerable disagreement as to what Jephthah actually did to his daughter to honor this vow to the Lord. One view is that he killed her and offered her as a burnt offering to the Lord. The idea of human sacrifice is repulsive and was never approved by God. But in the time of the judges, many didn't follow the laws of God, but were influenced by pagan practices. The other common view is that Jephthah gave his daughter to be a perpetual virgin in the service of Jehovah. The point of the story is clear. Beware of making a hasty, rash promise or vow. The children in the wilderness move when the Lord moved. They camped when the Lord camped. When the cloud lifted from over the sacred tent, the people of Israel followed it. And whenever the cloud settled, the people of Israel camped. That's Numbers 9 and verse 17. This is how the believer is to walk. We move when God says move. We camp when God says camp. We go when God says go. We stop when God says stop. When we are in a hurry to move forward with something, it is often not because God is compelling us, but it's because the devil is. The devil will compel us or urge us to make a hasty decision. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. Impatience can lead to dangerous decision-making. We see with these examples, with Jephthah, with Joshua and the leaders of Israel, and with Herod, that hasty action and hasty decisions leads to wrong decisions. The Bible tells us not to make hasty decisions. We're to be patient and listen and wait for God to lead us. The fifth factor that leads to dangerous decision-making is satisfactory circumstances appearing to give us the go-ahead. Verse 13 when a light wind began blowing from the south, the sailors thought that they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed along close to the shore, but the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength, a nor'easter they called it, 
caught the ship and blew it out to sea. That's Acts 27, verses 13 and 14 in the New Living Translation. In the morning there was a calm over the sea, and a breeze blowing from the south, so the travelers quickly set sail, hugging the shoreline for protection. When circumstances appear favorable, we conclude that God is in it. We are good to go because circumstances appear favorable. God must be in it. But favorable circumstances do not always indicate God's favor and His guidance. There are many examples of circumstances that seem favorable, but God was not in them. David spared Saul's life when he could have killed Saul and become king. 1 Samuel 24 and verse 4 in the New Living Translation. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today is the day the Lord was talking about when he said, I will certainly put Saul into your power to do as you wish. Then David crept forward and cut off a piece of Saul's robe. The NAB says, David's servant said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will deliver your enemies into your grasp. Do with him as you see fit. Then if you look at 1 Samuel 26 and verse 8, it says this, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hands this day. So the advice that David got from his men was, Kill Saul. You're given the opportunity. Kill him, and you can become king. But David resisted this advice, knowing that this was not the will of God. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to have a child by her, and by her Abraham birthed Anishmael. I shall obtain a child by her, and Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. That's Genesis 16 and verse 2. Again, this was not the will of God. We know by reading on that God did not approve of this. This was Sarah's plan, but this was not God's plan. God's plan was to have an Isaac through Sarah. Joshua's treaty with the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. That's Joshua 9 and verse 14. Again, this was not God's plan. This was a mistake that the leaders of Israel and Joshua made. Circumstances seemed favorable, but this was not God's plan. The parable of the rich fool The rich man's crops yielded plentifully. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. That's Luke 12 and verse 20. Circumstances were in their favor. Therefore, it must be God. It must be God's way of saying, Go ahead. Often, the opposite is true. God tells us to go and to do something, and all hell breaks loose. Just because circumstances are against us doesn't mean that God is against us. Just because circumstances are favorable doesn't mean that God is favorable. They were favored by a gentle south wind which enabled them to follow close along the shore of the island. That's verse 13. But then the wind turned into a northeastern windstorm, a hurricane-like wind that drove them out to sea. Acts 27 and verse 14. But not long after a tempestuous headwind arose, called Euroclidon. 
the word translated tempestuous gives us the English word typhoon. It is taken from the Greek word typhonikos, Acts 27, verse 14 in the New Living Translation. But the weather changed abruptly, and a wind of typhoon strength, a nor'easter, they called it, caught the ship and blew it out to sea. Circumstances may appear to be satisfactory at first, but circumstances can change quickly, as it did in this story. Satisfactory circumstances can sometimes lead to dangerous decision-making. The conclusion here is we need to listen to God. How do we make our decisions in life? Do we look for the advice of the experts? Do we depend on the opinions of the majority? Is it our impatience that leads us? Is it our discomfort or dissatisfaction with circumstances that leads us? Or do we wait for a golden opportunity to come along and then make our decision based on that? The Bible tells us, keep on asking and you will be given what you ask for. Keep on looking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds and the door is opened to everyone who knocks. The wisdom or power to live our lives must be given to us from above. God gives us an invitation to ask and to keep on asking, to seek and to keep on seeking, to knock and to keep on knocking. The wisdom and power for the Christian life will be given to all who earnestly and persistently pray for it. Check back with us in two weeks for our next episode of Relevant Truth. Next time, we will be talking about blindness from Mark chapter 10. Thanks for listening.